want to work with them again and again. And not every not every photo is going to be a grand slam yeah. home run. You know, there's there's plenty of failures in in photography, my work included. There's plenty of times when I've missed a great photo sure. because of that. But you have to think, okay, well, just for example, I was in Portugal and I missed the 720. Okay. I was swimming in the water with a fisheye, um, and and I totally missed out. That wave. And you were in the water though with Kelly. With Kelly, yeah. Right. We were just weren't in the right spot. We were at the beach and it was pouring down rain. It was howling offshore like 30 miles an hour offshore. And we sat there and watched it for two hours and we were humming and hawing about whether to go out or not. We're like, should we go out? Should we not go out? Not too sure. We watched it for like two hours. Finally, I was like, I'm like, hey, I'm like, let's just go out. We'll go get a couple waves and we'll go get lunch. I'm like, the pal out was really bad that day. I'm like, let's just go pal out and I'll make lunch taste better. All right. And I was thinking, it was howling offshore. I'm like, there's no way we're going to do an air on this day. Like, it's going to be a tube day. Set up a fisheye camera, swim out. First wave, he gets tubed on the left, comes out. Pals back out, sitting out there, and the wind went from offshore to sideshore. And that's when he got that wave, did the big double rotation, the 540 or the 720, which, however you want to call it. Yeah. Pals back out. I'm just like, oh, man, here we go. You know? You the, saw it. I saw the whole thing. And the wind went back offshore, which is not good for airs. And we're like, what are the odds that we pallet out for the 15 minutes the wind goes side shore? He does a 720, yeah. and the wind goes back offshore. And at the time, I was like, man, this, this sucks. But it was so cool, and I was so happy for him because he completed a maneuver that, to this day, hasn't really been done before. Yeah. And... I've looked at it many, many times, and I think, okay, how to add an 85 millimeter wood in the water or a long lens in the water would have made a great photo? Probably not. If I was on land, would I have got a great shot? Maybe a sequence. But you have to look at, or what, what I kept thinking about is, what images have we made together over the course of our relationship of capturing images that are different from everybody else's because we've taken risks? And it's all about risk assessment. and and how, how far are you willing to, to push the risk to get something that's totally unique to, to the point where if someone opens a magazine, they're looking at something they haven't seen. And, and that's something you have to ask yourself every time you go to go shoot. And that one, I, I chose to shoot a fisheye, never thinking you would do a 720, and he did, and it's awesome, and it was amazing. Unfortunately, it was during a contest, there's 40 other people that all got it documented. So it wasn't like we were in Indo and I was the only cameraman. That would have been terrible. Right. But the fact that it was documented, I, it was it was amazing. And I think it, it's great for him and it's great for surfing. And so, you know, I, I missed a good shot. But yeah. in the long run, I think we have a, a set of pretty unique images that, that no one else has. Yeah. How about that story? Welcome to Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. We have Todd Glazer on today's episode. Todd explains his path from humble beginnings in the world of surf photography all the way up to traveling with Kelly Slater and, of course, being mere yards away from him when he spun his now world-famous 540, which I am, of course, for the record, deeming that 
540 degrees spun in the rotation from takeoff to landing. So, I mean, it, when you look at all the imagery from that that spin that Kelly did, Todd is the single closest human being on Earth to that monumental maneuver and event. And while that's a pretty rad detail about Todd, it's hardly his claim to fame. If you pay any attention to surfing, I'm certain that you've seen his work. We have uh, some of Todd's best-known images on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, and on our Instagram, at surfsplendor. And he'll be telling us the stories behind those images in this conversation that we have with him. He also goes on to share his thoughts on the modern media landscape, how it's evolving, and of course, we chat about everybody's favorite conversation right now, and that is the world title race leading into Pipeline. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed today's show. Thanks to Todd. It's a good one. Enjoy. We grew up near the beach, and uh, my uncle lived down the street from me where I grew up. So anytime, or whenever I was done with school, he would want to go to the beach, and he was really into body surfing. So he would go body surfing, then I would go bodyboarding. And okay. that was kind of my introduction to going to different beaches because he would want to go body surf different breaks and take my friends and I up to the wedge up in Newport and right. um, down to La Jolla to go to Marine Street and Wind and Sea, and that was kind of my introduction to going to different beaches. What was your introduction into photography? When I was, so when I, I guess when I was about 12 or 13, I started competing in, in bodyboarding. Oh, okay. And as I was competing, um, sometimes when there wasn't contests, we'd go on these little photo shoots with, with friends that were photographers or different photographers for like, for the bodyboard magazines. And so that was kind of my first introduction to surf photography was watching these guys shooting him and, you know, shooting photos of of kind of the older guys and myself um, riding waves and I was always fascinated by what they were doing behind the camera more Mm. so than what we were doing riding the waves and so when I was 15 a friend of mine uh, who had purchased a housing he said he liked riding waves more than he liked uh, taking photos of them and so he sold me his old housing and his fisheye and I went out and bought a camera that worked for the housing and I still have that set up And that was my introduction to hmm. shooting photos. And it just started where I would surf on all the cloudy days and then I would take photos on the sunny and, you know, the days that were g- good for shooting photos. And it, it just slowly evolved from riding waves 100% of the time to shooting photos you know, maybe 20% of the time and riding waves 80% of the time. And then it slowly just transitioned into I, I got more enjoyment out of shooting photos than I did riding waves. Wow. Um, when the conditions were right for shooting photos because a lot of times the waves are great but they're not ideal the conditions aren't ideal for shooting photos right and so i found on those days when the sun was out and it was offshore and it was that real crisp morning light um i I had more enjoyment shooting those images and dropping them off at the lab and looking at them than I, i would riding them and so that's that's how it all started interesting it seems like a difficult balance to manage like surfing versus you know shooting yeah you know and finding the right balance for you seems like a tough thing yeah it's um 
there's definitely days that you want to be riding waves instead of shooting photos and there's other of days course, when yeah. you're shooting photos and um it, there, you wouldn't you wouldn't have it any other way I, yeah i always kind of think like you know uh, i'm very fortunate that i've i've been able to photograph some amazing waves and a lot of waves that i wouldn't personally be able to ride so I, I think when I'm when I'm shooting photos in the water, I'm kind of like riding those waves vicariously yeah. kind of through my images. Yeah. And so if if one of the guys that I'm shooting is, gets a great wave and you know makes a late drop that I would never make and is able to get in the tube and I'm able to capture that, to me that's just as gratifying than it would be for me to be riding that wave or it's like the next best thing. But yeah. I, it, I get the same rush by being in the ocean. I think non-photographers can relate to it by just when you're paddling out and you see your buddy get a good wave, you know, it's similar to that. You're almost, that's almost as good as doing it yourself. Right. And I always try and give a surfer's perspective of what it's like to be in the water surfing. Yeah. That's why I think it's really important as a surf photographer, I think it's really important to surf. And a lot of surf photographers don't surf. I, and especially when I'm home, I surf almost every day or as much as I can. And so I find by by surfing, just spending that time in the water, you start seeing things a little bit differently mm. versus if you're always behind a lens, you're so narrowly focused on, on certain uh, moments of a session, what lens you're using, what your shutter speed is, what your aperture, that you, it, it's hard to necessarily embrace the whole feeling of you know, putting on your suit, paddling out, getting stuck inside for a while, waiting for the right wave, and all those little moments, what keeps surfing so exciting is what also makes surf photography so exciting, is being able to document and show those moments. But mm -hmm. if you're going out with a camera and just kind of focusing on the action, you can miss all the peripheral, mm -hmm. which is equally as important. I find that, I mean, that's true in life in general even, where it's like, if all you do is surf all day, every day, you don't really enjoy it as much. If you take a little break from it, spend some time with the family, go watch a movie, you know, st stuff like that. Right. Take a few days off surfing. When you go back to it, you're kind of revitalized and you have fresh eyes and all that sort of thing. Exactly. So I think it's kind of, there's some parallels there yeah. to life in general, you know. I agree. Um, do you remember what your first paying job was as a photographer my first paying job let me think well i can remember my first published photo yeah and that was in it was in surfing magazine surfing magazine and uh, also owned a magazine called bodyboarding magazine right. and they shared a photo editor the photo at the time was jeremiah klein uh, who now works at surfline and he uh, I was in Hawaii, I think I was maybe 16 or so, and this wave we were at, it was kind of a hollow shore break, and there was a cross on these rocks, and I shot a photo of a big wave breaking with a cross in the foreground, sent it into the bodyboard magazine, just thinking that, I don't know, they might like it, and it ended up getting around in Surfing Magazine. Was this digital at the time? This was film. Okay. So I shot film, I, excuse me, I started shooting film and I still do shoot quite a bit of film, uh, but I flooded my film housing. I think I flooded my film housing in 2006 or 2007. And up until then, everything I shot was all was all film. But okay. Uh, it was 2007. Um, but I, when I flooded my, my film housing, I was like, all right, I should finally try and get into the digital world. And it's not that I was against it. I just felt like for me, 
at the time the quality of the digital cameras wasn't matching the quality of the film cameras. Sure. And the amount of money that you would pay for a film camera versus a digital camera, I, I couldn't justify spending more money for a camera that captured less quality. Yeah. Um, you know, and the whole film digital conversation is a whole other debate, but <clears throat> I, I do feel like there is an art of working within limitations and working with one roll of 36 images where you go out, you have to get the exposure right within to a third to a half stop, be selective when you shoot, come in, get the film back whenever you get the film back. And sometimes it's that day, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a month, depending on where you are in the world. And I think those learning steps, they help shape and mold you as a photographer. And I think that's why a lot of the, the photographers that were, um, I guess, maybe near the end of their career or still in the middle of their career, um, but have that, that uh, base or the foundation of film, have a totally different approach to capturing images than, let's say, a digital photographer. Because when you're shooting film, you, you premeditate a lot more. You, you go into a shoot thinking, okay, what film is going to be the best? What film is going to is going to share the story that I want to share to the best of my ability, to the best of my visual ability? And if it's a cloudy and dark day, maybe you choose a black and white film with a red filter to really make it contrasty. Or whether it's a beautiful, bright, sunny day and you want to shoot uh, Fuji Velvia to make the colors really pop and maybe you want to push it a, you know, a stop or two thirds of a stop to make it even more contrasty. Those are all decisions that have to be made prior to hitting the shutter because every time you hit the shutter that's one less frame you have before you have to swim back in. Now with digital it's it's made it a lot easier because you swim out with a 32 gigabyte card you have 1200 images in your camera it's a lot easier to go and choose your favorite five photos out of a thousand images, your favorite ten photos out of a thousand versus trying to get you know, five images out of a roll of 36, your percentages can be a lot less. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the argument is that you know, for one to totally push digital away, you have to look at the other side of it, which is a lot of film labs are closing down. Um, there's a lot less high-resolution scanners, and as a result of that, the scanners aren't being sc used as often, so you're the scans that you're getting back aren't as high quality as they used to be without going and spending fifty to a hundred dollars per scan for a great drum scan. And so, you know, when you look at the cost analysis of spending more for a digital camera, but essentially having every image being a drum res high resolution file, mm -hmm. you know, the cost can balance itself out pretty quickly. Right. At the same time, digital is a great learning tool, so you can see your mistakes on the back of the camera and or on the computer, and you can look at them that day or that night, and the next day you go to go shoot, you're already learning something new, whereas when you're shooting film, you, you would have to wait to, to learn your mistakes, and I used to keep a journal of every session I shot, whether it was, it was my shutter speed, my aperture, my film choice, my location, even down to the buoys and down to the tides. Wow. So I knew when the buoys were at a certain height and the tides were a certain, I would know where to go and what film to use and how to set my camera. Wow. Um, and that whole art with digital is, is gone. Sure. Um, and I think at the same time, digital is really, it's homogenized a lot of the photography in the sense that digital files are very neutral and it's up to yourself or the photo editor to 
use their interpretation of how they feel the image should be mm. seen on the post side. Whereas when you shot film, like I was saying earlier, it, it's really up to you to make all those decisions. It's your control and you either got something great or you totally messed up. Mm. But you had an opinion and you had a voice and it and it came through in your work. And a lot of the photographers I admire all of the film foundation and they're okay. all um, I, I feel like their work stands above a lot of the, the photographers who don't necessarily have that. Not say there isn't great digital work out there. Of course. But it's it's a it's a different mindset. It's a different aesthetic. When you go to shoot a portrait of someone and you pull out a fifty year old camera. It can be a bit of a conversation starter. It can intrigue someone. It can draw a question. It can, um, you know, it spawns curiosity. Mm. And when you, let's say you're using a 50-year-old camera, like a medium format camera, like a Hasselblad, which is a camera that I use a lot, I get 12 images on a roll. I have to be very selective as to when I choose, choose to shoot the shutter. Mm. With a digital camera, when you go to shoot a portrait, if you have a thousand photos in the camera, you could go shoot a thousand headshots doesn't mean it's going to be any better than the, the first one you would have done with a, with a film camera. Right. That's not to say if you take your digital camera and approach it like film, you can, you can get the same results. But there's something... About the intention. Of the intention. Right. And, the, and you know, the craft of, of, of making an image and printing it in the darkroom and, and having something that's tangible versus having thousands of files fill up in a hard drive and, and hopefully it doesn't crash and they just disappear into the cloud or into outer space what do you currently shoot currently uh, I'm kind of a camera nerd so I kind of I've got all sorts of cameras uh, actively in the water I'm shooting with a Canon 1D Mark IV okay so it's digital it, it is digital um, for, that's for the majority of my I guess you could call it like commercial and, and editorial work mm-hmm. um I'm also working on a project where I'm shooting it all on film, all 35 millimeter film in the housing, and okay. that's with uh, EOS 3. Okay. Um, I, I dabble with a bunch of other film cameras. I always have a, have a Hasselblad with me, which is a medium format uh, camera that was made in the 50s. Um, I use that. I have a point and shoot that I use quite a bit called Contax T2, which is a little pocket camera, 35 millimeter point and shoot that's just real quiet. Um, I, it basically never leaves my side. Nice. Um, when you a, go ahead. when you're employing film and shooting with film, has there ever been an instance where you know you didn't uh, pull the trigger basically, and then felt that you missed something? Whereas if you had been using digital, you would have just in like rapid fire to make sure that you caught every moment. Yeah. There has a- absolutely. Yeah. All the time. Okay. Yeah, I've I've loaded rolls of black and white film thinking I was shooting color I've loaded color film and thought it was black and white Um, I've swam out with no film in the camera before oh my gosh but I think that's this will sound funny but I think that's what molds us as a photographer and Mm -hmm. and as artists is that I think some of the greatest mistakes in photography have made for some of the best images Mm. and I think it's those it's, it's how you adapt to those situations is what makes you who you are and makes your approach to photography so different among all the other ones. Right. You know, take for Hawaii, for example. You go to Hawaii and there's multiple big lenses on the beach. And if everyone has the same Mark IV, 1DX, or Nikon, you know, regardless Canon, Nikon, that doesn't really matter. But it, it's, it's how do you 
how do you make your vision stand apart? And mm -hmm. some people are really good at the post-production. Some people are great at telling their story that way. Others like to do it before, uh, or, or they like to do it in camera. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think that's part of the fun of it, mm -hmm. it is being able to make mistakes. And, you know, you do, there is a weird feeling in your stomach when you're shooting and you have three shots left. And you have to be very selective as to when you decide to hit the shutter and when to miss. And you know that if it's more so shooting from from the water, but if you're done with your if you finish your roll of film, it's minimum 30 minutes to go in under your housing, dry everything off, load another roll of film, and go back in in the water. But it's exciting and it's fun. Yeah, but there's anticipation. Totally. But yeah. that's not to say there's many times like I've there's multiple times where I've spent six or eight or ten hours in the water swimming and I'm so grateful for my digital camera of course because I can be out there all day and capture images that I normally wouldn't shoot because I wouldn't have shot that had um, I only had a couple frames left or if mm -hmm. I'm out there shooting one person and another guy gets a great wave and I only have five frames left I'm not going to shoot it mm -hmm. because I need to make sure my film is ready for whomever I'm shooting and so digital is great for that mm -hmm. I think it allows you to produce a lot more images not necessarily better images but a lot more images mm -hmm. um, but that's not maybe that's not better that's not worse it's, it's just up that's up for personal in interpretation and it's up for the job too I mean yeah. working for Surfer Magazine <clears throat> the way that the editorial world is going they want to if they send me on assignment they want to be able to fill a story in a magazine in addition to a web gallery in addition to Instagram in addition to be able to license images to um, potential advertisers or current advertisers. Um, if a client hires me to shoot a catalog, they want to be able to see the results that evening or that night. Especially the way that the like news and media is going, everything's happening so fast. If you were to go do a shoot in Australia and say you're going to get the, you're going to be able to see the images in a month, you probably wouldn't get hired for the job because they, you know, they're already working on the next line at that point. Mm -hmm. So in, in order of turnaround. You need to be able to produce whatever your client wants uh, in an efficient manner and have it be of the highest quality. And if film is allowed for that project, film's great. But if digital is the way to go, then digital is the right tool for that job. Yeah. But for my personal work, it's always film. But for a lot of client work, it tends to be more on the digital side. It's interesting, though, like you think that with surfing specifically because every wave is different. It's not like skateboarding where you can go try the same trick over and over you think that it's all about um, capturing every moment and not missing a moment. But at the same time, as photography has become accessible to everyone because cameras are less expensive and, all, and it's digital and all that, everything is pretty much captured. And now you can scroll through your Instagram and you see incredible images just from everyone all around the world. And it all kind of becomes white noise where the images are less impactful. And I forget who it was that mentioned to me like that, you know, the last real impactful surf image was Laird's Millennium Wave at Chopu. Like that's one where everybody took note and recognized it. And since then there's been great images, but none of them really revolutionized kind of the media landscape, you know, or whatever. And so it it does seem that now kind of taking note of that it is all white noise that you shouldn't really pursue that anymore of just contributing to the white noise that there needs to be a little bit of restraint and maybe what's important is um 
like you said, the intention behind it. You know, I don't need to go capture everything. I need to be uh, mindful and purposeful and just catch kind of, I don't know. It, it doesn't even have to be the right moment. It just needs to, my intention, kind of the artist's intention is more important than the actual produced image, you know? Right. Well, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about an editorial image, that yeah. photo of Laird, which was shot by Tim, <clears throat> Tim McKenna. Right. Which is iconic for the wave. It was iconic for the timing. I, I remember being at the trade show when there were rumors of that wave being caught. But that was pre-internet. No one had seen the image. And there was one physical slide that existed of that image. And, I, and I'm going to argue with you a little bit about um, having there not be images that since that image that have stood the test of time. Um, I feel like there have been other images that that are right in that caliber. Mm -hmm. um, the first one that comes to mind is the one of McCullough Jones from Java that was shot by Dustin Humphrey. Mm -hmm. The story behind that image, is, as I've been told, is they were on a boat trip. Dustin ran out of film. McCullough had a couple of rolls of black and white film that he brought with him. It was a beautiful sunset evening, and Dustin borrowed, I guess, or McCullough gave him the black and white rolls of film. McCullough then paddled into one of the more beautiful waves of the day that was twice the size of anything else. And it was Evening Hughes shot in a beautiful black and white, <clears throat> black and white negative. And that is, one could call that a happy mistake because typically he would have been shooting color film. Mm -hmm. But as a result, you wouldn't have gotten that tonal, <clears throat> those tones without using that black and white film. And so as a result, that image is that much more powerful because of it. Um, it's, with, you know, a, a lot of photographers and, and, a, and a lot of image captures, both still an image, they're still in motion, you know, it's easy to get caught up in, uh, they call it gas, gear acquisition syndrome, where people get really excited and they all want to talk about the cameras and they want to make sure, you know, who's using what camera, what gear does this. But at the end of the day, it, I, I don't think anyone's ever picked up a camera and, and been able to pinpoint which camera was used to shoot an image without it labeling it, unless it says Hasselblad or Leica or 4x5. Or, you know, there, there's certain cameras that do have a distinct look. Um, however, it, what makes a photograph is a story mm -hmm. that's leading up to the photograph. Why are you why are you drawn to the subject why are you choosing to, to load a roll of film why are you choosing to charge your battery and put a cf card in your camera to point your lens at this person sometimes it's just dumb luck and just happens to be there other times you're shooting because it's part of a greater story and you're using that tool to tell the story so take for example if you're going to shoot an area that's a very sensitive area and people don't really like their photos being taken you have to be very discreet if you walked around with a big 1D Mark IV, or 1DX, or 5D Mark III, people could, could maybe be, um, they would have their guards up. Right. Opposed to if you walked around with a Leica or a point-and-shoot camera, you'd be a lot quieter, people wouldn't notice you as much, and as a result, it would lend itself to more intimate moments. Mm. Um, the same can be said with surf photography. If you were to swim a Leica out to pipeline, you know, it'd be pretty difficult to, to be focusing a rangefinder when you're having when you're trying to get out of the way of ten foot sets. But if you did it, it would look unique. Not to say that would be the best tool, but you could do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're out at pipeline and you're dealing with ten foot sets and you have a big K 
heavy camera with a big yellow water housing and you got two swim fins and you're yelling because some guy's taking off on a wave and you know you have to be in the perfect spot it would feel natural to have a bigger camera that would maybe shoot 10 frames a second so you could capture every you know the, the peak moment of that with maybe a frame before and a frame after um, so it's all about choosing the camera and choosing the lens and choosing the film or or all the same media type that fits the story that you're trying to tell what are you trying to say and how are you trying to say it yeah and that all comes down to uh pre-production right and it's being being prepared for whatever's going to happen and sometimes it's just dumb luck and it's just being there other times it takes months to plan to be there for one image and and that's what makes it fun yeah that's what makes it exciting talking about impactful images that kind of stand out and um secret locations that people don't want you showing up to let's talk about your june 2009 surfer mag cover with greg long that was one that stood out to me without even i mean just like when that magazine showed up i was like holy crap that's one of the better images i've ever seen on a magazine can you tell me the story behind that image oh thank you yeah (laughs) absolutely um yeah that was that was a pretty special day um couple of days for me i was i was looking at the swell and i was trying to kind of figure out where to go and i'd been in communication with greg and i'd been talking to his brother rusty a bit and we'd also been talking to a good friend of ours noel uh, robinson who who passed away a few years ago in porto and we'd all been trying to kind of figure out where to go and one day i get a call from rusty one afternoon and he's like hey what are you doing tomorrow do you want to go on a swell chase mission and i was like yeah man and he's like cool he's like i'll uh he's like get your cold gear ready and he's like i'll call you back in a little bit i'm like all right and so about an hour passes his brother greg calls me he's like hey you got any plans for the swell and i was like oh just talk to your brother but I, I don't really know yet I was kind of just trying to see what he had to say because he's always got some good wave up his sleeve and those two hadn't been talking uh, together about the swell and he's like well I got this idea get your cold rear, cold, get your cold gear stuff get your camping stuff he's like um, I'm going to call you in a couple hours I'm like cool so did all that Time goes by, time goes by. Finally, like, 10 o'clock at night, which seemed like a long time. Greg calls me, and he's like, all right, here's the plan. We're going to meet here at this time. Just be ready. We're going to be back in a week. I can't tell you where where we're going, but just, just be ready. So I was like, cool. Next morning, we met up at, like, 5 in the morning, and we started on our mission to where we were going. And part of the deal is that, you know, they promised... They made me make a promise that I wouldn't say where we were going. And I was like, absolutely. And so that that's something that's always been important to me. And that's something that comes from the bodyboarding background is we would always go and chase waves and not tell anyone. This is, you know, this is before Instagram. I think Facebook was around, but none of us really used it. My phone didn't have the internet. It, yeah. it was pretty secretive. You'd have to look your best friend in the face and, and tell him you're going to go to Cardiff when you're going to La Jolla or, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And so... We would go, <clears throat> we went and chased, we, we traveled for about a day to get where we were going. And we get there and I'm looking at all my equipment. First thing, I'm just like, 
oh man, I'd forgotten a card reader. And so immediately, this is still, I was still pretty new to digital at the time. So I'm like looking and I'm like, okay, I have this many cards, I have this many images to shoot. And I was like weighing it out. And I'm like, okay, I have the equivalent of like six rolls of film a day to shoot on digital. And we had, we had a five day swell. So I was mapping out how many photos I could shoot per day. And this, this is one of those times I was super fortunate for the film background because I knew how to be conservative. And it was even to the point where I had a film camera with me. And I'm like, okay, digital is only for shooting action surf and I film only for lifestyle because I can't waste any digital images on lifestyle photos because that's gonna cut into my surf images and that's also gonna cut into my battery life and I only have three batteries and so that doesn't last that long for five days. I was totally unprepared, I had no idea. Sure. No idea what I was doing. That day, that image was shot, was that was shot on the third day of the swell. And it was just a beautiful, sunny, phenomenal day kind of inconsistent i was swimming with a wide angle lens and the place we were was really far out to sea so there weren't any landmarks and it was really you know lining up was difficult and at the time there were two guys paddling and i was just swimming on the inside just trying to figure out where to where to be in the lineup and because it was inconsistent you'd go 45 minutes without a set how big is that wave it's a it's a pretty big wave it looks big but again it's like it looks uh like it's deceiving yeah like it's deceptively big it was a pretty big wave and we we ended up shooting that whole session we surfed for about six hours came in the swell dropped that night and we traveled the following day all the way home and i remember i got home and i I was doing a quick edit on the images and i was looking at them and I think this is before I even worked for Surfer. I, I think I submitted like five photos. I was like, check out this stuff. And that photo wasn't in the submission. And at the time, the photo editor, who, who still is the photo editor, Grant Ellis, he was like, hey, you should come into the office, but bring every photo you shot. And like film days, like you don't do that. Like you, I would spend a whole winter to fill one slide sheet of 20 images. And you're like, here you go. This is, the what, best. This is my winner. This is right. the A. This isn't. You know, you're not t- turning in 100 photos or 200 photos. You're turning in 20, right? Maybe 30 if it's a sequence, but like very, very little. And I was super nervous, and I walk into Surfer Magazine, and I walk in. I'll never forget. It's my first time in Surfer, and this is at the old office of San Juan Capistrano. And Sam George and Jeff Devine are at the light table, looking at Ron Stoner images to make his book. And Grant's behind the office, and I was so nervous. I had Greg and Rusty come to the magazine with me. I was like, you guys got to come with me. Like, I don't... Moral support? Yeah. And the guys at the magazine were surprised because not a lot of the surfers actually go into the magazines. Yeah. You know, they they do their thing in the water and then it's up to the magazine to do this. I'm like, you guys got to come. Like, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. And of course, those guys are already in there. So I walk in and Grant's like, oh, Todd just got back from a trip. And they're like, where'd you go? And I had to look them all in the eye and tell them I didn't know. And they all kind of smiled like, yeah, we heard that one. And I was like, well... You know, if you know where it is, that's great. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not sharing any information. I'm sworn to secrecy on right. this one. So I ended up showing them the images, and that one came up, the one of Greg, and they're like, "What do you think about this one?" And at first, I was like, "I don't know. It's too early in the sequence." I'm like, "If you look later in the sequence, he's standing up in this big barrel. It's way cooler." 
And they're like, no, this is the one. I was like, he's not even getting tubed. Like, I just totally didn't get, I didn't see what they were saying. Sure. And they're like, no, this is the one. And kind of, we went back and forth. And I was like, all right, whatever. Like, I left. I'm like, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Hmm. And like a month or two later, I got a phone call. I think it was from Greg or something. He's like, congrats. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we got the cover. I'm like, of what? He's like, surfer. I was like, no, we didn't. We get the cover. And drove up to his house and he had the magazine. I like, saw it. And we're like, no way. We got the cover. This is awesome. And I was like, why'd they choose that photo? And then a couple months later, it was surfer pole. And that photo was then chosen for the photo of the year. Yeah, I voted for it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I guess people seem to really like this photo. And then um, it's still, it's, I guess whenever I do like an interview or something like this, that photo is always yeah. talked about. And, and I'm finally starting to see where, what is seen in that image because it's a bit of an anticipatory shot. It's the idea of this wave that Greg and Rusty found by themselves. And, you know, no one really knows how big the wave is or where the wave is. And it's, he's got this bright pink board on this beautiful blue wave. And I get it now, but it, it took me a couple of years to see what everyone else saw. Well, I'm trying to think of it myself, like, because like I said, the image jumped out at me the moment I saw it. Like, the magazine came in the mail, and it was like, wow, this is arguably one of the best images I've ever seen on the cover of a magazine. And as you're talking about it, I'm trying to define to myself, what was that? And I think what it might be is talking about your intention with shooting water photography of trying to represent the vision of the surfer or being a surfer in the lineup and the things that you see and that's kind of maybe what it is for me is you've paddled over and had to duck dive a million waves with guys coming at you where you're trying to negotiate do I paddle out do I paddle behind them or whatever it is and I think that photo has some of that um the coloring I mean the like the cosmetics the aesthetic of it I think has a lot I mean that's very appealing as well but I think it's more to do I don't know, maybe with that story that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sound ungrateful. I'm extremely grateful oh, of course. For, for that image no, and, of and for what it's allowed me to do. And, and, um, and I mean, I don't think anyone is as deserving of that image as, as Greg or, or his brother Rusty, if he sure. was on that wave. Or Twiggy was out too that day, actually. Oh, okay. But, um, yeah, it's, it's funny what we see in images isn't always what other people see. And yeah. maybe it's one of those things that we're emotionally attached to images. I was mm-hmm. I was talking with my friend, um, or I was talking with Kelly Slater yesterday. We were talking about images and we're working on a story currently for Surfer Magazine. And he was like, did they use that one, one photo from Portugal, this photo of the left? And I was like, no, I'm like, that one wasn't even selected as a high res. And he's like, that's my favorite photo. He's like, why don't they ever pick my favorite photo? I was like, I was like, I don't know. That was one of my favorites too. <laughs> but the way that the magazines work and the way that the, you know, when you work with a team is when, when we see an image, we're like, we, you know, we hike this far to get to that wave and we sw- swam yeah. against the current for four hours and I was freezing and I got bumped by a seal. And, you know, I forgot breakfast that day. So I was low, I had low sugar count or I had too much coffee and I had the jitters. And so there's all these different emotions that come with capturing an image versus just seeing an image like what an editor does. An editor doesn't see that. They see the hard facts and they don't, it's not that they don't care what it took to get that image, but they don't know what it took to get that image. Mm-hmm. Whereas we we know what it took to get that image. They look at the image and go, is this gonna make a good spread? Is this mm-hmm. gonna make a good cover? We, we understand how hard this wave is to surf. We understand the, the position you had to be in 
to capture that image. But what, how does this play out in terms of laying into a magazine or into an advertising campaign? And what will the readers think? Right. If they can't convey that story to the reader, then they might not be willing to publish that image. Right. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So you current you work with Surfer Magazine right now, right? What's your position? I'm a staff photographer for Surfer Magazine. Okay. Do you have um, other staff positions other than that currently with any other brands? I do. I work with a company called InCase, okay. which is a bag and accessory company. Yep. And then I do a lot of freelance work or independent contractor work with a number of different uh, surf brands as well. The latest job I did was with uh, Kelly's new company, Outer Known, mm -hmm. and we were over in Europe building content uh, for the release of his new company. So how, do, how does it work from a business side or just a finances side when you get offered to go on a trip? Um, and maybe it's different for different companies, but is it like here's a day rate plus expenses, or maybe with Greg and Rusty, you guys are all buddies, so you all just kind of do it for the fun of it, you know? Yeah. Tell me about the business side. Well, from the business side, I guess as a, as a staff photographer, as a what they call a retainer photographer, you're still an independent contractor because you technically you're not on salary. They call it a retainer, so they don't have to pay benefits and do all that stuff, insurance. Sure. Um, so the way it works is, I'll start with an editorial trip. And suppose there's a big swell, and suppose I get a phone call from, you know, a Greg or a Rusty or, or or anyone else, Kelly or, and anyone, you know, I, I get, my wife and I we call it the swell phone. When there's swell, my phone rings a lot. Right. And we always laugh about it. And the first thing I'll do is if I, if I see a swell, I'm always watching swells too. Is, is I'll reach out to the team at Surfer, the editor and the photo editor, Grant Brennan and say, hey guys, there's a swell going here. These guys are thinking about going there. Are you interested in covering the swell? And depending on what the budget's looking like and depending on what the space is looking like in the magazine, they'll either say, yeah, let's do it. This will make a great editorial piece. Or, no, we did a story there recently. We don't need it. We're going to pass on it. And from that point, it's up to me to go, okay, is it worth 
my my own money and time and investment to go chase the swell with the anticipation of creating images that I could either one license out to their sponsors or two hopefully come back with the goods and have surfer reimburse me for the trip and that's always an iffy one I've done it a handful of times and it's always come out for my favor a lot of times with those big swells there's a lot of photographers going um, I try and shoot in the water a lot which not a lot of photographers do on the bigger swells and as a result we tend to get something a bit more unique um, so that's one way but typically um, the traditional method is that you, you start planning a trip and you, you can organize a crew of guys to go and then you create an editorial piece for Surfer Magazine. Um, the second way is I get contacted by, by a company, a Quicksilver, uh, a Billabong, a Hurley, one of those companies, and they go, hey, we want to put together an advertising campaign. We want, you know, we're interested in you shooting it. Um, we want, we're doing board shorts. So right away, you know, you're going to go somewhere warm where they can put on shorts. And they go, okay, how long is this shoot? What, what do we need to accomplish in this shoot? We need to do lifestyle images as well as action images, or is it just lifestyle-based? And then from there, you start juggling your day rate based on uh, the amount of usage, the amount of days you're going to be away, and if they need anything specific for the shoot. So if you need specific equipment or if you need uh, specific lights or anything like that, that all gets... Um, organized into a budget which is then turned into an estimate to the company in which they decide to either uh, choose you or choose another photographer for that job um, so that's th that's more of the commercial side of photography yeah and that's both w within surf world and outside the surf world too okay got it and so between those those two balances that's how I, I do the majority of my work it seems like it's an expensive obviously endeavor travel's expensive camera gear's expensive and it's like if you're uh, hedging the bet or hinging the bet on I'm hoping to be able to sell these photos you know when you're financing it yourself basically and taking that gamble yeah yeah maybe you sell a photo or two but you know a photo won't cover the expense of the trip so right that's when you know a lot of photographers have said this in the past and, and I agree with them is you know a lot of the surfers do make they, they make a lot of money. There are surfers that are making yeah. well into the six figures, some into the seven figures. Surf photographers don't make that. But we gain wealth in a lifestyle and through experiences. And something that we have are stories, and we have images that tell those stories mm -hmm. and images to remember by. And at the end of the day, I'm really fortunate, among with a lot of my other uh, I guess so they call it colleagues or friends. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we're a lot of them are all friends. Sure. Is, you know, I'm, I'm under 30 and I've, I've got a great wife, but we don't have kids. We, we live a pretty simple life. Yeah. If there were ever a time to do it, now's the time to do it. Totally. Um, I sympathize for the guys who, you know, are pushing into their forties and maybe don't want to spend eight months on the road away from their wife away from their kids and that's something that, that I don't want to be doing right and so at this moment of time in my life I don't have kids I have a wife that's super supportive and then gets to travel with me at times it, it's the best job I could ever ask for absolutely and when I say you know sometimes I take it upon myself to pay for my own trips like I love surfing, I love photography, and, and I love to travel. And so I always say I use my commercial jobs to pay for my personal jobs. Sure. And, 
and I, I was doing my taxes. I, I was late, you know, I have to pay on the October 15th. I was doing my taxes, and I looked at what I spent on film last year, and I go, you know, I'm like, that's quite a few days of commercial work to pay for what I paid for film, but it makes me happy, and mm -hmm. it, and it, and it keeps me balanced of, you know, constantly just shooting digital images. Right. Um, and so, and I think that's important, and that, and it's, you need to have that separation of, of your personal endeavors as well as your commercial endeavors because there's times when you're working and there's times when you're playing and it's it's funny I, I love shooting shooting photos and so if the waves are good and it's going to be sunny out I'll take my camera out even if no one's surfing and I can't make a dollar and it's going to cost me $20 in film to go shoot it but I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. That's my thing. That that's what I love to yeah. do. Some people love to go to the bar after work and, right. and drink a couple beers. I don't really do that. I you know, that's that's what I love to do. It keeps me healthy, keeps me fit, gives me a reason to wake up in the morning. Yeah. Keeps me excited. Uh, and I think that's hopefully what people see in my photography is that, you know, in, in my commercial work, my editorial work is that same passion that I do. You know, people that they go, What do you do when you don't shoot photos? Like, oh, I'm kinda shooting photos a lot. But right. when I'm not, I'm I'm surfing. Or hanging with my wife or doing other things. Let me ask you about kind of back to the, the business of surf photography. So surf photographers aren't getting rich doing it necessarily. And even those brands that you just named, a lot of them have been struggling significantly more than they ever have in the past. We've seen massive declines in revenue kind of not only for the brands, but for uh, print as well, you know, right. across the board is struggling. Where do you see things headed? What's the new business model? Um, I know you mentioned Outer Known with Kelly. You know, there's things are changing. And it seems like all of that is kind of scary, but it also seems ripe for a person, you know, like an Elon Musk type person to step in and just be like, look, this is the new way. We're going to leverage all the creativity that we have out here and infuse it into this. I don't know what the new model is. What what do you see? That's a great question. And it's something I've thought about, but I haven't put a ton of energy into. Yeah. Maybe you're asking the wrong guy because, like I said, I, I'm still well, I'm, I'm still you. printing photos in the dark room, and, I, <laughs> and and my friends give you know give me grief for it all the time because we'll go on a trip and they won't see photos for a month or two. Yeah. And you're not used to that. Everyone else will go on a trip and they'll review photos every single night. Right. I'm like, we're done shooting photos. I'm like, let's go get dinner and fall asleep right. and do it again tomorrow. Uh, um, so when it comes to the editing side, I'm, I'm still a lot slower on that, but I do that intentionally. Mm. I, I think so much of what we do has become so automated and so much has been expected. Whereas you go, you go on a surf shoot and people are like, hey, send me a shot for Instagram. You're like, we're not here for Instagram. If, if Instagram hired for, hired us to be here, yeah. sure, we'll send you an Instagram photo. Yeah. But we're not. We're here to shoot photos for Surfer Magazine. And if Surfer wants to sit on those photos for a year, they're going to sit on those photos for a year. And you're not going to see them. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Or if you want to see the photos, drive to my house and we'll we'll look at them together. Yeah. But in terms of um, uh, on a bigger scale, I, I think mixed media is going to be the, the greatest asset. I think using tools, the the Instagrams of Facebooks is this great new website called Elo, which just started, which is a social media site that's run by creatives and photographers. It's not endemic. There's no sponsors in it. it. You can't, no one's making money off it. Facebook makes a ton of money off what we do. They track us, they follow us, they advertise to us. Um, 
I, I think I don't think print is going to disappear. Yeah. But I think it's constantly being subsidized by different forms of media. Now, who's to say what has more value? I think they're both just as valuable. I think if you have a hundred thousand follower, hundred thousand followers on Instagram, you post a photo on Instagram. That has a lot of reach. Yeah. That has direct access to every single person that's gonna that's gonna see that hundred thousand potentially. You know, they kind of say if you have a ten percent um, user, what's it? You active user. If you have a ten percent active user, you're doing great on Instagram. So, so suppose you have a hundred thousand followers. 10,000 people are liking or commenting that's that's excellent right that's probably better than the magazines um, on an emotional side there's still something to be said about having a tangible magazine going to the post office going to 7-eleven going to the bookstore in the airport buying a magazine holding a magazine reading a magazine and then giving it to your friend mm-hmm. and I think that's the emotional side kind of like a CD or an album which isn't necessarily extinct but it's it's slowing down right and print costs are are only going up scanning costs are only going up digital equipment costs are only going up but i don't think people have lost the enjoyment of reading a magazine Hmm. Um, i think also the intention behind producing the magazine is similar to the the film digital discussion right you know there's a lot more work and pre-production that goes into it than an instagram post because in- instagram it, as you could post the greatest instagram photo ever in three days it's forgotten about oh yeah it's, dude in 30 seconds yeah right but a perfect example was you just made the you know in the last half an hour we've referenced the image of Tim McKenna shot of Laird Hamilton You, I referenced the McCullough Jones image by Dustin Humphrey and then you mentioned the June 2009 cover that I shot. Um, I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, but can, do you yeah. remember what I posted on last Monday? No, but I remember a series of black and whites the last couple of days. Yeah. That's it. That was a black yeah. and white challenge right. that, that Thomas Campbell <laughs> gave me. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, You're my right. short-term memory is terrible. Right. Um, no, uh, but yeah, to your point, I can't remember an imp or I can't remember a memorable Instagram right. from you or from anyone else for that matter. Right. Neither can I. Yeah. It doesn't. And if it is, it's because you remember seeing that image at another time. Right. And that opens a whole new floodgate of people, you know, um, abusing copyright and, sure. and that whole side of the conversation. But to get back to, to media, I think there's going to be not necessarily a resurgence, but I think there's going to be a new appreciation for print, print media because that, Everyone argue, you know, when digital came out, when Canon came out with this this 20D camera, this was in, I don't know, 2005, 2004. Everyone's like, this is the greatest camera ever. I'm selling all my film stuff, giving it away. Digital has changed the world. And you're like, wait, well, these film cameras that we used, you know, basically the first film, I believe, was right around 1890. So you're telling me from 1890 to 2005, you're throwing that all away in one eight megapixel camera. Mm. That's absurd. And it's a tool. That's like saying that the new 2014 Toyota is better than a 57 Chevy. You know, the 57 Chevy is style, it's got class, it's probably diesel, so it's gonna it's still gonna run forever. Your, your Toyota, it might be great for commutes from here to LA or here to SF or driving cross country. It might be more reliable but is that car going to be running in 50 years? Probably not. 
that's not to say it's a bad tool. It's a great tool for today. You wouldn't want to be driving a 60-year-old car, you know, 15,000, 20,000 miles a year. Yeah. But for certain parts of your life, it's a great weekend car. Right. It's a great beach cruiser. And I still, and I feel like the cameras are the same way and lenses are the same way. And I feel like magazines are the same way. Um, you know, I love going to, I was at the dentist last week and they had a whole thing in National Geographic. And when they called my name, I was bummed because I was like, oh man, these are, these are great magazines I haven't read yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you look around, everyone's on their phones all the time. I'm, I'm totally guilty of it. It's made a lot of interaction antisocial. Sure. Y- you build this false sense of relationship by likes and comments. And uh, just yesterday, I had two phone calls from different kids that wanted to be up and coming surf photographers. And they're like, for, the question you always get is, what camera should I use? How do I shoot the pros? How much money do you make? And uh, where's the best place to travel to? Those are questions you always get. And you're like, wait, do, do you even like photography? You have to fall in love with photography. Oh, and how do I get followers? That's a big one. How do I get followers? I never would have thought of that one. And my my wife, she does social media for a living. She's great at it. She loves it. She always gives me a hard time for it because I never really take it that serious. If it wasn't for her, my whole social media would be photos of feet and burritos (laughs) and cups of coffee. You're like, you're into feet? No, but it's just funny. (laughs) You know, like Tom Survey, or not Tom Survey, Jeff Devine used to take photos of his feet at every beach he went to. Really? At the end of his, you know, he's still going, but 40 years later, he has feet, photos of his feet at every beach he's been to. That's a really cool collection. Hilarious. I just think it's funny because I have ugly feet from wearing swim fins my whole life. Yeah. But, you know, I I kid around with this, but suppose you have 50,000 followers, 10,000 followers. When you're out there with a camera and you're and you're freezing and you're gonna get a 10 foot wave land on your head, you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. You could have all the followers in the world. No one's there for you, you're, by, you're on your own. So you better really enjoy what you're doing. Because at that very moment, it's up to you to get through that situation. Right. And that's what a lot of people aren't seeing right. at the moment. Um, and again, there's this whole conversation of, it's really easy to make an image look good two inches by two inch, two sure. inches on a phone. Um, not so much a two-page spread in a magazine. Yeah. You really have to pay attention to detail. And even with digital, there's a lot of great photographers who, when it comes to quality, it's not quite there. And now the photographers that do pay attention to detail and do pay attention to quality, their work is exceptional. And I think currently there's a lot of photographers that are doing that and are, are rising above and their images are very apparent, at least in the surf world. Do you want to rattle off a few names? Yeah. I mean, g- guys I think of straight away are guys like Zach Noyle, Brent Bielman. I mean, uh, those two guys, in um, Daniel Russo, in terms of water photography, those guys are leading the charge. Um, I mean, th- the big influences that I have in the surf world uh, from the first time I was picking up a camera were guys like Art Brewer and Patrick Trev, Steve Sherman, uh, Pete Terrace, Grant Ellis. Um those guys, uh, Larry Moore, Flame, those guys, they paid attention to detail. Tungsten from West Australia, Eric Grenard, uh, John Frank, those guys, they've, they mastered their craft and they did it in such a way that they were able to capture a moment, do it in the highest quality, but do it with their own interpretation of, their, of that moment. Mm. Uh, a, guy, a guy like Flame would always shoot very early in the morning front lit beautiful tight action 
guy like Patrick Trevs would shoot the same moment on high-speed black and white film with a red filter and print it himself in the darkroom and give it a totally different aesthetic. Um, John Frank would do like what Patrick was doing, but do it in the water. And I think that's what made their images so strong, and I think that's what made them such strong visionaries, is that they had an opinion, and they shared that opinion the way they wanted to do it, and whether the magazine chose to pick up, pick up, pick it up and run with it, or say, no, we can't run that. But if you look at the images that were run in the 80s, first images that were run in the 90s, 2000s now, there's been decades of images that you can identify each decade through the imagery, and it mm -hmm. wasn't really until the late 70s early 80s when Art Brewer was pushing the envelope in the black and white world when everyone else was shooting color um, you know him even guys like Grant Britton Steve Sherman you know their visual documentation of what is happening in the surf world was so unique to what all the other surf photographers were doing Steve Sherman came in grew up as a surfer and a skater and took what he learned from Grant Britton and applied that to the surf world so you'd see You'd see Sherman, he'd have you know, Vaseline all over his lens. And it had a unique look to it. And it and it was rough. And he, he brought the streets to surfing. And there were other guys that did that as well. Sure. C.R. Stesic and, and quite a few others. But to me, his work really stands out. Like, he's like, I mean, in in the photo world, there's this group called Magnum. Magnum photographers, guys like David Allen Harvey are all part of it. And um, they've been partnered with Leica for a very long time. And... I constantly look at their work for inspiration and it's like guerrilla photography but it's but they sympathize with their with their subject and I think Sherman is a great example of that if he were to ever there ever to be a surf photographer to be associated with a group like Magnum it would be Sherm he's intimate but he's sensitive to the subjects that he's shooting and he documents everyday life with a photojournalistic approach and he's one of the very few guys in the world that can be this be in Kelly Slater's yard at the same time he's in Parkin, Joel Parkinson's yard at the same time he's in Mick Fanning's yard when they're all going for the same world title mm -hmm. and he's a photojournalist and he's always come out and told, said, everyone, said to everybody that he is a photojournalist but he does it with compassion and he tells an intimate story that not very many people get to see right. and I think his work is so amazing because of that and so his work's always inspired me to do that but do that in the water so whereas when a guy gets a great wave, you know, there's a lot of great surf photographers that can capture a great wave, but what's their reaction when they're, when they're done with the wave, when they're piling back out? How are they slapping their friends a high five? All these little intimate moments that a lot of people don't necessarily um, care to document help round out and tell a great story. And that's something that I always try to do, which totally is sidetracked from the business question that you asked me. No, that's fine, though. It was all along the lines of things that I would be asking you anyways. I'm all jazzed who, up on coffee right now. Good. It's perfect. <laughs> Get you another cup. Um, who, who are your favorite subjects to surf? Surfing, lifestyle, and portraits. Like, give me a few names for each category. My favorite subjects to shoot surfing? My friends. Um, okay. You have a lot of friends. I do have a lot of friends. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I mean, are there any that stand out? Uh, the guys, are, I, I'll, I'll do a blanket statement and okay. I'll do a couple names. Yeah. The guys who I really love to work with are the guys that enjoy photography and they appreciate photography. And there's a few surfers that don't necessarily appreciate photography. They go, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go rip. And they, and they surf incredibly. 
and don't mess it up. Right. And just be there, document it, do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. I'll see you when we're done tomorrow morning. We'll do the same thing over Mm -hmm. again. I don't really like to work with people like that. Okay. I've worked with people like that. They're great at what they do. It's awesome. There's nothing against them, but it's a job. And and to me, there's there's no... um, there's not a lot of depth to that. I, I like to be more communicative with the subjects. I like to come up with an idea. I like to talk about what board we're going to ride. I like to talk about what film we're going to use, what lens we're going to use. I've been on the, the beach before and with full wetsuit on, swim fins on, camera in a water housing, and had a guy like Kelly go, you know, I think today's better for land. And you're like, okay, let's do land. And you swap it out, and then the next day you're on land, and you go, oh, I think today's better for water. And you go out and you do water, and it's... I like it to be a collaborative process because at the end of the day, unless you're doing a big commercial job where you have a director telling you what to do, we don't get paid enough to be told what to do. Mm. I mean, it's where photography is a lot of about freedom of expression, especially on an editorial standpoint. Now, again, not so much on a commercial standpoint. If you're trying to create and sell a product, you have to document things a certain way that an art director tells you. And a lot of times you'll still pull the subject aside and do a couple of things that you think are cool, but you have to make sure that you cover the basis as to what the client needs. Sure. Once you've done that, you can do whatever you want. But from like a surf trip standpoint, I like to I like to discuss with the guys what what it is we're trying to do. And if you're if there's a big swell coming in California, I'll start thinking about okay, you know, where are the waves gonna be good? Everything starts with the waves. What are the waves doing? Of course, yeah. And then what surfers are going to complement those waves? So you don't call a small wave air guy when you're going to go to Mavericks. And you don't call a guy that surfs Mavericks to go surf small waves because it's just, the, the photos aren't the same. Um, I mean, if the waves are 20 feet, 25 feet, Greg and Rusty, hands down. There's no no two other guys, or, and maybe Dorian, actually Healy too. <laughs> but guys that I've really traveled with are Greg and Rusty. We, we've spent so much time together. We, you know, we all like the same coffee. We all like to eat healthy, you know. Th- there's nothing worse than having to babysit someone. Right. And with those guys, you're not babysitting. You're on point. You know, you're up at four in the morning in your five mil hood on, gloves on, coffee's being made in the full suit, and that makes for great photos. Yeah. And a part of being there is documenting that, but it's also part of you have to be able to know when it's your time to make sure all your cameras are all set up. You know, if there's a four a.m. call time, I'm up at three a.m making sure that everything's set up and if i don't sleep that night that's okay because that's important yeah to to be ready um i've I've been really fortunate i've done a ton of trips with kelly we we started working together with quicksilver actually steve sherman introduced us in france in 2008 2009 and uh we became friends and we've been friends ever since and um he's great to work with he loves to surf good waves right and with good waves comes good photography um, typically good waves result in good winds and good weather and those are all elements that are needed to create images um, I would assume he's reluctant to let people into his life because everybody's trying to get into his life you know what was that or what was it like early on with him it, it just like anyone you, you you go in slow and you know you show a passion for what you do and you know you understand that the passion they share for photo- for surfing is the same passion that I share for photography. And if you show them that you're there, at the end of the day, it's about making a good image. Hmm. And so as long as you don't mess around, and if you're on your, if you're prepared, and you can capture the image, 
then they like that. They like as as much as you're thinking about making sure your camera's ready, they're thinking about their boards and where to yeah. go and all the way. So if you can match energies that way, mm-hmm. it's a great relationship. Yeah. Um, uh, Rob Machado, I grew up surfing with him. He used to uh, babysit his cousins, who are really good friends of mine that I grew up with and went to middle school and high school with. Um, we I, that, That's who I was surfing with just before. We're great friends. Rob's great. He's the kind of guy you call and be like, yeah, let's meet at the beach at 6. He's there at 545. And he'll show up with five boards and be like, what should we ride today? And you're like, I don't know. The waves are kind of hollow. Let's ride this or let's ride that. And it's so fun Yeah. because it's collaborative. And... And he's investing not only his surfing, but he's investing his quiver into it and going, you know, this would be really cool on a single fin. You're like, let's do it on a single fin. That'll be awesome. And there's other times where, you know, you do have to push and be like, come on, let's let's get up at 4.30 and we're going to do this. And I've got this idea. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sure. But you have to look at it, at what you collect as a whole. And as long as your heart's in the right spot and you want to, and you want to, everything you're doing is for the greater good of the image, then people see that and they respect that. Yeah. And... You know, again, you know, you show up and you can't show up hungover and do all that. Course, so yeah. I, I do take what I do very seriously. Um, but I, I love to photograph Rob. Craig Anderson is one of the guys that I haven't photographed very much, but every time we shoot together, we get some of my favorite images. He's so stylish and so that, smooth, and he's really cool to hang out with. Yeah. Loves a good cup of coffee, loves <laughs> dance music. He's just, he's, he's fun to be around. Yeah. And we always get great images. Ryan Birch is another one who's just he's into what he's into and it's and that's great to document and it's fun to be around and he he lives in Encinitas and these are all guys I grew up surfing with so whenever we're not shooting we're still surfing together right which makes that which makes working with your friends that much better because mm-hmm. when you're done when you're done surfing you can go get a coffee or go get a pizza or go get a burrito and enjoy their presence without having a camera all the time right. but when you do have a camera everything seems to feel a bit more natural sure yeah, I mean, just in a number of the things that you've said today and talking about Sherman, it's like, it seems like, um, obviously you have access to these people, you know, and that's key. But more importantly than that, really, is just being able to get them to kind of put their guard down and develop that intimacy in the relationship with them to where not only do you have physical access, but now they're just being open and being themselves and all that sort of thing. Because too often when you pull the camera out or when I pull the mics out for this, it's like everybody becomes a different person. Right. You know, and I think that's really the art in what you do. I remember Sherman once told me, and again, he's been one of my biggest um, influencers and friend. And um, I've learned so much from him. You know, he goes... 90% 90% of what I do is social. Right. And it, and I didn't get that for the longest time. And I remember I remember when I bought uh, my Hasselblad. And I remember to, I'd go to shoot these portraits, and they would come out terrible. I'm like, why did my photos suck? I'm like, I got this killer camera. I got yeah. black and white film. Doing everything right. Yeah. My exposure's right. But there was no connection. Yeah. And once I, I kind of learned that and figured it out, you go, you know, it's it's more about the connection and building the relationship and doing it efficiently too. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to waste time. That's the other thing. Sure. You got to work fast. You got to work really fast. You know, don't take 10 photos when you only need to take three. Right. Um, but take 10 photos if you need to take 10 photos, but work efficiently and, and with 
you mentioned something about access, but that access is a very fine line. And mm-hmm. with that access comes trust. Sure. And so, I mean, even going back to, to the camera conversation is there's a time and a place to have a camera and there's a time and a place not to have a camera. I always have a camera with me <laughs> and everybody knows that. I always have a camera. But it's when I decide to pull it out is what differentiates myself from maybe someone else who wouldn't, who has maybe had that access and had that privilege revoked. Mm. Um, And there's a very fine line. And my theory was, if I always have a camera around, people know I always have a camera. And if there's a moment where it's okay to shoot a photo, I'll shoot a photo. But if it doesn't feel right, I won't shoot a photo. Yeah. It's just an instinct. It's an instinct. Yeah. But it comes with trust. Right. And if you abuse that, it's going to be that trust gets revoked really fast. Trust in any part of your life. You can't right. really earn it back, you know, or it's difficult to anyway. And it's it's that same trust that goes into bidding a client, even if it's a client you've never even spoke to. Right. I, I spoke to a client, a potential new client yesterday about a job, and and they have, you know, they always come with these these grand ideas to, to do these campaigns and do these big billboards and all this stuff but it's your job as a photographer and as a, as a media creator to, to start at the beginning and go okay w- what story are we trying to tell and how are we trying to say it Right. and yes helicopters are great and motion cameras at a thousand frames a second are great but why why do we need that when we could do this or will that help us in telling this story yeah. and if that's the case then great then that's a tool for the job. But mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, um, not in regards to photography necessarily, but just in regards to kind of your relationships and your position, a lot of which you just discussed, like with Kelly and stuff. Um, who's going to win the world title this year? <laughs> What's your insight into that? Who's going to win the world title? Well, I'm going to say I hope Kelly wins. That's who I'm cheering for. That's who I'm rooting for. I'm definitely on the Team Kelly side. Aren't we all? I mean, we we are, but the reason why you have unique access to all those guys and you've seen them and you know about Kelly's headspace and you have basically insider trading info on this world title race, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to win it? I know you want him to win it, but who do you envision actually taking this thing? The math is with Gabriel. The math obviously. is with It's his to lose. Right. His head definitely didn't look in the game in Portugal. Go Brett. Yeah. I mean, Brett, <laughs> I mean, Brett hadn't won a heat all year, and all of a sudden he decides to beat Medina in Portugal when it, it counts. The, like, it was the best. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, I wish John was still in it. Yeah, I know. It'd be really cool. I'd love to see John win it, but He's it's not possible. He's got a lot possible. of time ahead of him, so it's fine. I, I don't know Medina personally. Yeah. So... You know, I, I always say I'm, I'm a pretty terrible photojournalist because I get too emotionally attached. Yeah. I'm the guy when someone falls down instead of shooting a photo, I'm like putting the camera down to help him get up. Right. <laughs> which is like terrible photojournalism 101. But uh, I mean, if I had to choose between Medina, Mick, and Kelly, I, I would go Kelly all the way. Yeah. Realistically, it, it's tough because Kelly's in, in the third position, which means that Mick and Medina are up against wild cards. My personal opinion is the bigger the waves are, the better the wild cards are going to do. Pipeline is a very tricky lineup. 
You have to put in a lot of time out there. I think Medina is an amazing surfer, but I don't think he's putting a lot of time at Pipeline. And I think the difference between five feet in the lineup is the difference between getting a six and a 10 on the same wave. Mm -hmm. I think if the waves are eight feet or bigger, the wild cards know exactly where to sit. They know exactly how to surf that wave. And I'm rooting for the wild cards against both Medina and Mick. If I had to choose between Medina and Mick, I wanna, I'm going Mick. Um, I mean, if you look at my fantasy surfer team, we're doing terrible because I, I vote, I pull my fantasy surfer team totally on impulse, mm-hmm. which is terrible because I don't look at the stats and I don't look at the numbers. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, he's a good guy. He's going to do sure. well. And it doesn't pan out that way. Um, Mick's really good at pipe. Um, I, I would much rather see Mick win it than, than Medina. And I would much rather see Kelly win it over Mick and Medina. But the odds, I think Kelly has about a 5% chance of the, beating, the, of, of winning that event, which is a pretty a pretty low low rate. But he could do it. I well, mean, he has to win the event, and Medina and Mick have to lose out before round four, I believe. And that's the problem is, yeah, Kelly could easily win the event, but it's not really in his hands. Right. All those guys have to do is continue advancing, and nothing Kelly can do about that. Right. If Even Medina, if he does win. If Medina makes it past round three and Kelly wins the event Medina wins right which will be last year all over again against Mick so hopefully the judges are a little bit more on it this year right (laughs) um um what's your you kind of alluded to it a little bit about Kelly give me insight into his headspace just in terms of like yeah you would think that the world title is an important thing to him but he does have outer known going and perps and all these other obligations in his life it seems like his attention's a little more deferred mm-hmm. than in past years do you have any insight into that uh, or can he manage all those things at once i mean i think he can i think i think kelly has a great team behind him and i think kelly likes to stay busy okay. um he he's always has a, he always has a lot of stuff going on, whether it be through charity work, through golfing, through starting these new companies. I think he's more excited than ever to be working on his own terms and not working under the structure of a, of a larger corporation. Not that those weren't great years for him. I worked with him at Quicksilver, and we had a great time. Right. Um, I think this is a new chapter in his life, and I think it's something that he's embraced, and he's realizing how much work goes into it and maybe finding a new appreciation for what goes in what goes on inside of an office outside of just making ads and and building clothes he's uh i mean he's very hands-on with everything that's going on with the brand even to the point of you know visiting factories and making sure that all the employees of the factories are happy so when the product is made it's something that you can look someone in the eye and shake their hand and go yes you know this is made sustainably and made organically and made conscientiously conscientiously and made um using fair trade practices right do those things though are they related to what looks like his lack of focus in france portugal and a number of other spots this year i don't think so okay yeah unrelated uh, i i think it's unrelated okay absolutely yeah i i think contests are tricky and, and when you're on you're on and when you're off you're off and um he's had a couple opportunities most notably in portugal where he could have um caught up to right. where he needed to catch up and i think he 
he didn't rise to the occasion at that opportunity. I, I don't think that's a, a, a negative thing. I, I just think it, he, you know, it was a, a lapse of judgment during sure. that heat. Right. That's all. Um, a couple of closing questions. What's the best wave that you've ever seen ridden? We actually just had a session just the other day in, in Portugal. Um, or I watched, we surfed this left sandbar for about three and a half hours, and we were the only guys out. Who's we? Um, Kelly and I. And I watched Kelly, he was trying a new board, a little bit different than some of his other ones, and he got a wave where he, he was like beyond vertical, airdrop, stuck it on like an eight footer, and never touched the rail and stood up in like an eight foot barrel, and got about a 10 second tube and blown out. Um, but I think technically it was probably one of the most technical drops I've ever seen ridden. Really? Just based on the fact that he completely free fell, never touched the rail, and was able to regain composure similar to what he did at, at Pipe. Uh, Against John. Last December 21st. No, that one he grabbed rail. Oh, okay. During the semifinal? No, yeah. that was during the final when he grabbed the rail. But uh, about three weeks ago, another way of... I was thinking about similar to... The, I think it might have been the final at Chopu against Bruce Irons. Do you remember that wave? Free fall drops in and lands laying back almost like he's falling down and then stands up and readjusts and never grabs the rail. That was in round out. three. Okay. That was in round three. It yeah. was Bruce though, right? It was Bruce, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that whole turning point for, I believe, the ninth world title. Yeah. Um, that was one of those. I, that, I was just like, what? It was pretty similar to that, but the wave was bigger. Okay. It was one of those drops. Were you surfing or shooting? I was shooting. Okay. Yeah. Any photos of it? There are photos of it. Yeah, so that'll be out in Surfer in the next couple of months. Um, other great ways I've just, I saw um, I saw Rob Machado. We went to Tahiti this year, and he got a wave that was it wasn't a big wave. It was like three or four feet, and he probably got tube for like twelve seconds, and it was just a perfectly ridden wave. And he took off, and it was like head high. And it kept getting bigger and bigger, but he was, he was on a 5-2 biscuit, those little Channel Islands, little squirty things. And he, as the wave grew, he just kept going faster and faster and faster, and he ended up flying out way at the, the bottom of the reef. And usually it's one of those ways where you take off, get tubed, and come out, do a little turn, get tubed again, come out, get tubed again. But he he sped through the entire thing, and it was one of the more one of the better surfed waves I've I've seen on a technical standpoint, not necessarily on a big wave, but on a technical standpoint that I've seen in a long time. And I guess actually thinking about technique, Twiggy's wave in 2010 during the Mavericks event, the 10-point ride, mm-hmm. um, that wave was ridden technically perfect. Really? Yeah, that one was flawless. Interesting. That one was, in terms of waves that, that stick out of my mind, that's one. Wow. As well as, uh, oh man, now that I think about it, Greg Long's wave in 2009, July, He's on a yellow 9.3 with black ri- black rails. He airdrop and bottom turn on like a 20-footer in Porto. Oh, at Porto. And uh, pulled up, kind of got, wouldn't really say he got deep in the tube, but he got in the bowl on like a 20-foot wave and got blown out the channel hmm. um, at Farbar Porto with no flotation on. From a technical standpoint, that was probably the most te- one of the most technically ridden waves I've ever seen. Wow. That one, that, Crazy. Those, those ones stick out to me. But... Again, I'm, I just photograph those. Those are a lot of times when you're shooting photos, it's all happening so fast you don't really realize what's happening mm-hmm. until a day later, a month later, a year yeah. later, and you really get to assess those. I mean, I was there for Nathan Fletcher's wave uh, in Chopu, Chopu during the Code Red as well, and I was shooting from the water, 
and I saw this big black line coming. I was like, oh my gosh, this thing's crazy. And I was on a board and I, and I, and I paddled. I was trying to get out of the way. I was the furthest on the inside. As I was paddling, I was like, I gotta shoot this thing. And I sat up and I shot three frames and had to get back down and keep paddling. And luckily I was able to capture the main moment of that wave. Yeah, I've and seen then, that image. And then get way out of the way. Right. But that was technically one of the greatest waves ridden. Um, man, come to think about that, that wave um, Ramon Navarro got at Cloudbreak during the Volcom contest was phenomenal. Jensen Hassett's wave at Cloudbreak, that swell. Dave like Wassell's wave. Yeah, um, uh, yeah there's, oh, I don't know. there's a lot. We, we could be on for a while if you yeah. start talking about those no, waves. It, I love hearing those stories, though. Yeah, Bruce I mean, Irons at, at Cloudbreak the year before. Cole Christensen got a phenomenal one at, at Cloudbreak um, 2012. So you talked about your in those experiences. You're looking through the viewfinder, shooting, and sometimes it doesn't really percolate until uh, how important it was until later. I wonder that about photography too. Like, because I've shot photography not professionally, but I've been into it since I was young, and it's like there comes a point where you're not really living the experience. You know, you're just kind of looking through the viewfinder of life. Yeah, or at life. Um, did you go on your honeymoon recently? I did. I was on Instagram. I saw, I thought it was your honeymoon, but I wasn't sure if it was just a vacation. Um, did you shoot photos on your honeymoon? I did. And that's a really funny question that you asked that. So I, I travel a lot. I travel for a living. Right. I, I love doing uh, what I do. But when I travel, I have a lot of gear, you know, f- exactly. minimum four cases. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. And a lot of my friends, uh, when I was trying to get tips from them, I'm like, okay, we're going to Italy. Like, what'd you guys bring? And one friend's like, man, I brought everything but my 600. I was like, that's kind of, that's a lot of equipment to be traveling with. And, yeah. And I was talking to another friend. He's like, I didn't even bring camera. I'm like, well, you got to bring camera because we're going to Italy. Like, there's beautiful stuff to see. And so I decided to keep it really simple. I brought one camera. I, br- I brought a Leica M6 and a 35 millimeter lens. And I brought, I think I brought... 20 rolls of black and white film which was way too much film but I wasn't sure I don't know sure. it was like my first vacation yeah, yeah. which sounds funny to say and, uh, my wife and I we only brought carry-on bags and so the whole time I kept a camera with me the whole time but I had one camera one lens one type of film wow it was really simple cool and if I was walking around and something looked cool I'd take a photo of it mm-hmm. and if something didn't look cool I wouldn't take a photo of it it was really simple yeah it takes the pressure off a little it bit it took the pressure off and it it really made me reassess what I'm doing on the road Okay. with the amount of gear I travel with. But to backtrack at the same time, there's been plenty of times I've been on the road and you have a housing break, port break, a lens break. And if you don't have backups, you know, how do you explain to the crew that you're with, hey guys, I thought I'd give my back a break and, and only travel with half the amount of gear, assuming mm-hmm. that nothing was going to go wrong. Right. So when I'm traveling for work, I need to make sure I have more gear, just like surfers have more or more than one board, I need to make sure I have more than one lens. I need to have backups. I need to make sure that I'm able to capture whatever happens. Right. But yeah, it, it was amazing. I had one camera, one, everything fit. I, don't, I didn't even have a camera bag. I just, everything, it would be around my neck the whole time. And it was amazing. It was so much fun. And we came back. My wife is like, uh, he's like, she's like, we should have shot more photos. I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, we, we lived it. We, yeah. we totally experienced it. She's like, yeah, but we don't have any photos to show for it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But I'm like, the the photos we do have, we appreciate Mm -hmm. because they remind us of maybe that day, not necessarily that 
you know, the croissant that we ate, although I did shoot quite a few photos of croissants and, <laughs> and coffee. Closing question for pretty much everybody is just what's the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard I rode? Yep, which was an hour ago. Which was an hour ago. <laughs> I caught one wave. I piled out and sat for 45 minutes. I've actually surfed twice today. Oh, really? And I'm up to two waves. Solid. My first session was 10 minutes because I had... I had a meeting early and then I had another one and I had a, a 20 minute break and so I piled out and caught one wave in 10 minutes and then I thought I would do the same for the next session perfect which I was a little late I'm sorry no, about but uh, I rode a 5.3 Rich Bavel Keelfin Fish amazing is it yours? it's mine wow it was made um, it was a gift from my wife that she um, she's Rich has been a family friend of ours and hers for a very long time. I mean, he was there. I think he was at home when, when she was born. So she's a, he's a very close family friend to us. And um, she called Rich and had the board made. And a good friend of ours, Jojo Roper, glassed it for us. And TK did all the... Uh, was it? No, I'm sorry. TC at, at Joe Roper's did all the, the color work on it. And I rode that this afternoon. It's a beautiful five-three keelfin fish. What was um, the occasion for such a gift? I have no idea. Oh, it wasn't like a wedding gift or something. No. Oh my no. gosh. No, I I came home one day and she had this board and um, it's orange and black, which are my favorite colors for yeah. Halloween. And uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful board. I, I love to ride it. And today the tide was really high and the waves were pretty flat, so that's what I rode. But I I typically bounce between. Uh, um, I've got that keelfin fish, a 5-2 biscuit, little Channel Islands thing. Christensen yeah. um, just made me a 5-9 rounded pin okay. for a little bit bigger surf. And then I've got this uh, a 9-1, or I'm sorry, a 9-3 kind of eagle-esque board made by Ryan Birch. It's probably like the most symmetrical board he's ever made. Really? But uh, that, that's my small wave paddle machine. It's called the Oh No. Awesome. It's a good little quiver. Yeah, that 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 swim fins in a water housing, and then I'm right. ready. I'm ready for winter. <laughs> Perfect. I got what I need. Is there anything else that we should cover? Yeah. Thank you for for having me on. And, thank you, dude. And I appreciate your Perfect. time. That, that was that was cool. It was really fun. Thank you. All of the imagery that we discussed, as well as a link to Todd's website, is actually on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. It'll be easiest if you just come there, and then we can link out to everything that we discussed in today's show. Of course, all past episodes of our show are available there as well for free. We have 62 past episodes, completely free. Leave a comment for Todd or feedback about this episode in the comment section on our site. It's always cool to see this conversation continue on long after we produce and publish the show. You can also find our show in any popular podcasting app like iTunes. I noticed that we had a couple new five-star ratings this week in iTunes, so we are hugely grateful for that. Please rate and review the show if you haven't already. We're very appreciative of that. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to create this content and spend time with people like Todd, but we really rely on you to not only listen, but to share the show. One of the recent reviews on iTunes was from somebody who said that they loved the show, but they just wished it was more frequent. 
We'd love to produce more shows than just once a week. And the more listeners we have, the more guests we will be able to attract and the more shows we will then be able to produce. It is just that simple. You can literally double our listenership by just sharing the show with one single person. Thank you for doing that. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. Until then, this is David Scales of Surf Splendor saying thank you for listening. Ciao. Sugar baby. Sugar baby.